Hello and welcome to the Apostolic Church Liverpool podcast. We hope the message you're about to listen to will inspire you, will be a blessing to you and give you perspective in life. For more of such messages, you can visit our website at www.tac-lona.org.uk You can also access other messages and resources from our YouTube channel, The Apostolic Church Europe. We hope you're blessed and inspired by today's message. God bless you. Here's the message. Um, We're starting with chapter one for today, and um, we trust God to help us. It's been titled The Church and Its Message. I'm sharing my screen, and I want to believe we are all seeing the screen. Yes, sir. All right. Um, So... If we remember last week, this is the overview of the outline uh, that Pastor gave us. The book is broadly in four categories. The first part talking about the church and its message. The second part talking about the church and its members. That's where we talked about women, we talked about men, we talked about pastors, deacons, and believers generally. And then the third part is going to talk about the church and its minister. So zooming in specifically on ministers of God. Um, But of course, again, we know that we are all ministers of God. Second Corinthians 5.20, Paul writing to an entire church. He says, for we are the representatives or the ambassadors of Christ. In that sense, we represent him wherever we are. We minister unto him in the congregation of his people and even in whatever areas of influence we find ourselves in the world. And the last part is the church and its ministry. So the message of the church, the members of the church, the ministers of the church, and the ministry or ministries of the church. And those are the areas we'll look at. But for today, we are zooming in on chapter one, which is about the church and its message. And that's the part that uh, we are kicking off with today. But I want to start um, with an advertisement that was also mentioned in the resource material that all the facilitators would be working with. Um, And the advertisement is on our screen. It says, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, but there is honor and recognition in case of success. And this advert was a real advert published in 1914 uh, in a London newspaper. Some other sources will say in Times newspaper, but it was published by a man by the name Ernest Shackleton, um, a British uh, explorer or voyager um, in that period of the world, yeah, of history, so to speak. Um, and of course, this advert, as simple as it started, uh, as it sounded, and as clear about the dangers involved for this role as it was, the advert attracted thousands of applications. Over 5,000 men actually applied for this role, and only 22 of them were needed. Eventually, of course, they set up, the, the, the job was to go to the Antarctic and explored the Antarctic. That was the point of it. As of that time, not very many people have been to the Antarctic, the South Pole. Um, And those that had been there earlier than 
this team that was being put together in 1914, these ones want to do it in a way that will break many more records than those that had been there before. It turned out that the journey would eventually take them almost three years um, and with lots of dangers involved. At some point, their ship was stuck in ice um, for, they were thinking it's just going to be for some few days, but they were stuck for like 10 months and eventually the ship would even eventually sink. Um, a few of them would have to go and look for help. And I mean, everything was just, the whole story was very, very, very perilous in that sense. But the interesting thing is none of them died. They all survived in the freezing, blistering cold of the Antarctic for that long period of time. And they all made it back at the end of the day. Um, and as interesting as that sound, we now want to appropriate that to our Christian work and our Christian journey to say, if Jesus was to publish an advert like that about what we have gotten ourselves into in the name of Christianity or in the name of salvation, in the name of saying, yes, now I'm saying yes to Jesus. What exactly are you saying yes to? Perhaps that kind of an advert could sound like this. Men and women wanted, in fact, I would also include men and women and children wanted for difficult task of helping to build Christ's church. You will often be misunderstood, even by those that are working with you, in other words, fellow believers. You will face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not see the result of your labor, but you can be sure that your full reward will come. And it will not come until after all your work is completed, but it will come. It may cost you your home, it may cost you your life ambitions, and it may even cost you your life. Now, if this is what was put across to you or put on the table on the day you wanted to say yes to Jesus, would you have said yes? And if you would have still said yes, why would you have said yes? Let's just take a couple of contributions on that. Look at that advert again. Think of the many other things you could have added, at least based on your experience since the time you said yes to Jesus. The different things that you have gone through, the different things that you are going through right now. If anybody ever told you that saying yes to Jesus would translate into all of these issues, would you still have said yes? And if you still have said yes, what would have been the reason why you would have said yes? Does anybody want to share a thought or two on that before we dive into reading some verses from the first chapter of Timothy? Any, any thoughts, any contributions? You can unmute yourself or raise your hand and let's talk about it. Is that fair? You're smiling. Sister Iberi, do you want to speak? Oh, okay. Yeah, go on, sir. You are muted, though. You are muted. Okay. All right. Good evening, Iberi. Good evening, sir. Well, what you advertise here is uh, it's really difficult in the races that I know we believers. I'm just giving an example, for instance. Okay. At this moment now, we know like uh, in the hostile countries like Saudi Arabia or Indonesia, 
Let's just come what is around now. Even as we now, if any one of us now, I mean, ask me to go and stand in the street of Saudi Arabia, be preaching word of God, I know what is going to cost me. Mm. That is my life. There's, there's no way. I know the risk in it. Mm. So if it was put on the table here, I know I, I have to be sincere to myself. To, I will say no, because I know what is going to cost me. Mm. So I won't try it. So it's just like something that does such advert. I know that if I go and succeed, it will bring honor and glory to me and glory to God. Absolutely. But knowing that I already know what the risk is, it's already there. Mm. I won't attempt it. Thank Praise you. the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank <laughs> you. Your brutal honesty. <laughs> Any other thoughts? On All right. Okay. The good thing is, at least we know that in reality, we don't get to do this on our own. We get to do whatever we do as part of God's family by the strength that God supplies. At least that's, that's one of the refreshing comforts. But it's good to also, you know, put this across to us so that we actually know what we are in. You know, people take offenses at all sorts of things in this thing called Christianity, especially when it comes to church context. We do life together. We are a family. We tend to see each other more often than once a week. Um, we ask ourselves questions like this and receive contributions on Thursdays. We pray together on Tuesdays. We attend push on Fridays. We come to church on Sundays. And there are lots of many other portals of interactions going on within the week amongst unit members and different departments and many other things going on behind the scenes. With all of that going on, there is a whole lot of room for many of the things that are described here to creep in at different times. We've heard um, Pastor share sometimes some of the challenges that come with even just, you know, standing in the gap for someone else and things like that. It's a, it's a very, very, to use for want of better words, is a very, very dangerous journey, but a very, very blissful one, a very, very um, inspiring journey. And there is no other journey that could have been more exciting, no other adventure beats actually saying yes to Jesus. After all, he's the greatest master for whom anybody could work. You are serving the one who is called love, the one who is the most powerful, the one who then therefore will give um, the most glorious rewards in that sense. And the task of building his church is certainly... <laughs> the greatest challenge and the most noble challenge anyone could take on. Again, it's not us doing anything that we do, but it's the one that is doing it in us. Timothy finds himself in, this, in, this, in the reality of this kind of context, perhaps more fiercely than most of us may ever know um, on this side of history. To lead a church at any point in time, in history has always been a difficult challenge. If anybody says pastoring or leading a church is fun and is always a fun fair, then maybe it's not a church that the person is leading. It's a, it's an, it's an, it's a challenging responsibility. But 
the context in which he was even doing it in made it even more challenging. And so this letter offers a lot of, a lot of insights to help us um, as people that are joining together in this work of faith, um, as someone to glean from the experiences of those that had gone before us, in this case, Timothy. Um, we have said all of this, so I won't go over them, just so that we can refresh our mind. This is straight off uh, pastor slide from last week, um, just to remember the relationship between Paul and Timothy. But even in our discussions before we started, we have mentioned that again, that Paul led him to faith, he chose him, he trained him, he sent him to minister. And even at some point, Paul trusted God's grace upon Timothy's life enough to depend on Timothy for some help um, at different phases of his ministry. But in spite of his calling, in spite of his close association with Paul, in spite of the spiritual gift on Timothy's life, in spite of the heritage of faith in his maternal line, in his mother, in his grandmother, he was someone that sorry about that. It was someone that um, obviously had it tends to be easily discouraged. And for understandable reasons, Sister Linus was saying that he's a young man probably still in his teenage years when he was being saddled with all of this responsibility of leading. And so on the one hand, we knew that he had physical problems to, for which Paul would tell him later to take a little wine. We know that he, some of the church members were not giving him the respect that they should give to a man of God because this looks like a boy of God rather than a man of God. And also Ephesus as a city is a very, very, it's just like current that we spoke about earlier on. The major goddess that is being worshipped by the pagans is Diana. And Diana is known for sexual um, profanity in a manner of speaking. Uh, so it's like the god of sex and, and everything that comes with that, or the goddess of sex and everything that comes with that. So there's a whole lot of profanity that is in the atmosphere um, as well back in those days. So imagine a young boy leading a church of many people older than him in that kind of context. Paul then writes to encourage him. That's what we want to journey together in and catch a glimpse of. Now, while Paul was writing all this to encourage Timothy and explain how church should be managed and enforce you know, his own authority as a servant of God, there are three things in chapter one that comes forth as three responsibilities of both the pastor and the members of the church. One thing I want us to bear in mind all through this series, whoever is facilitating whatever chapter we are in, don't ever um, exclude yourself as though to say, at ah, that part, they are talking to pastors. At ah, this part, they are talking to ministers of God. That part, they are, no, we are all God's ministers. We are all God's children. And this is meant for all of us in that sense. So we're going to look at some of those responsibilities. The first one being teaching sound doctrine. The second one being proclaiming the gospel. And the last one being defending the faith. And right from the word teach, some of us might easily just, you know, hopped out of that bus. I'm not a teacher. But again, challenge yourself to, to be open to receive all that the Holy Spirit is willing to pour. So the first 11 verses I'm reading from the New King James Version. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, 
to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some people that they teach no other doctrine. Verse four, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from sincere faith from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And so, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate person, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, my being Paul. May the Lord bless the reading of his word in Jesus' name. So in these first 11 verses, basically, of course, Paul comes in with his signature style of starting most of his letter. You see things like grace and peace. You see him referring to himself as an apostle. This time he says an apostle by the commandment of God. He affirmed his authority yet again as a servant of Jesus Christ. So that those in the church, mind you, this is a letter just like Pastor said last week that would be read first by Timothy, but eventually, of course, also read by the entire church. And so in reading just this introduction, part of what Paul is doing here, and by God's grace, the church in Ephesus was planted by him. His ministry in Ephesus was so prosperous that the Bible says in Acts 19 that by the time Paul has finished spending three years in, in that region, everyone in that region had heard about Jesus. There is no one that will say he doesn't know about Jesus. Not all of them have believed, but everyone in that region. I'm just wondering how, how, how flourishing um, that ministry must have been for just within three years for everyone in a particular region. In fact, I think the Bible says in the whole province of Asia, none of them was without um, an evidential, at least to say, I've heard about, about Jesus. I've heard the gospel in that sense. So Paul is affirming his authority here to say, this Timothy that is in your midst is not there because of his own accord. He's there because an apostle sent him there. There's an authority that is backing him up. And that apostle is not having an authority in and of himself. That apostle's authority also comes from church and um, from God. Every church that has a leadership at least every true church, I should qualify, because there are lots of organizations calling themselves churches, but which by virtue of some of the things we are going to see in this book are really not churches, but every church, every true church that is being led by whatever form of leadership God has instituted, one of the things that every member of the church must acknowledge is that that leadership was put there by God. 
In fact, we know by extension that every there is no power, there is no authority that is put in place anywhere, even in politics, without God's permission. So bearing that in mind can be part of the beginnings of unlearnings for some followers of Christ to not take for granted the privilege of the leaders that they have in their midst. That's not to say that the leaders will be perfect. That's not to say that the leaders will be 100% in all virtues, no. But in spite of their fallibilities, in, in spite of their vulnerabilities, they are there first and foremost because God has put them there. So Paul wants the church to know that Timothy, their pastor, was there because God essentially has put him there, because Paul's authority to send him was also given by God. And then I like that in verse 3, or verse, no, verse, I think it's even verse 1, it refers to Jesus Christ as our hope. Yes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, our hope. That little title that is ascribed to Jesus there is refreshing. It reminds us of the fact that we all have a blessed hope. Many times when we talk of hope, we, we, we think of hope as far as it's on this side of eternity. Like whatever it is you are asking God for now, you hope that it will come to pass. But the, the most profound of our hopes as Christians is the reality of the ultimate fulfillment of all that God has planned the reality of our glorification, the reality of the fact that Christ is coming again. That's a sure hope. That's our blessed hope. And Christ is the anchor for that hope. There is nothing that we might pass through on this side of eternity. And sometimes that will feel like our ship getting stuck in some highs on the adventure. Um, sometimes it will look like some people's ship actually sinking. Uh, but whatever level we get to, there is that certain surety that we will get to the end of this journey because the one who started us on it is coming back for us for, 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 a, for a certainty. You can be sure of that. From verse 3, Paul moves into the main topic that he wishes to address first, and that's the issue of teaching sound doctrine. And he mentioned that there are some false teachers already, you know, doing things in Ephesus and trying to empower or encourage. In fact, the word in the KJV was to charge Timothy, to charge some other people to, to, to take dressing, to abide within the confines of what is true doctrine. Of course, we know that in every generation, there will always be false teachers. In fact, um, I mean, one question you could think about personally, I won't say we should contribute on it, but you could think about it personally is to say, what false teachers do I know today? What false teachers do I know today? Um, and then as we go on in unpacking what this old false teaching and things look like in the course of our series through this book, you can then begin to weigh what you, those you think are false teachers on the standard of what the word of God actually teach it, teaches. Um, in that, in that regard. So we need well-grounded believers just as much as we need well-grounded leaders, pastors, teachers, um, church leaders that would equip and disciple 
um, other fellow believers. The interesting thing about Christianity is that, I mean, it works pretty much like a family. There are certain things that, at least in my own little experience uh, of being a father, there are certain things that myself and my wife would teach our kids, but there are certain other things that the eldest brother would teach the younger brother better than we both could explain it to him. In fact, there have been times I would say, okay, don't worry, daddy, let me tell him. <laughs> and then he speaks in a language that his younger brother actually does understand. And you see him take alignment immediately. That works as well in the Christian sense that we are all disciples, that's a given. And there are times that we'll get our teachings, our wisdom, our insight, our instructions from the leaders. But even for those of us that might feel like we don't have any quote and unquote leadership position, we are still influencers within the body of Christ. And so there are still other people that you will influence. We just need to be sensitive part time to how the Holy Spirit is leading us to be a blessing. Not everyone would be given the opportunity, for instance, to facilitate a Bible study. Not everyone would be given the opportunity to preach on a Sunday. Uh, but every one of us has the capacity to, to teach, to inspire someone else onto the truth, to foster the grounding of someone else in the, in the soil of the truth of God's word. And you will notice, like I said in, verse, in that verse three, that Paul used the military language when you hear things like, I, char I charge you, to charge means to give strict orders from a superior officer. Um, and so part of the pictures that we are beginning to see, and we see lots of metaphors in, in this letter, in this episode, about what our Christian journey looks like. But one of the very first metaphors we are seeing, just from the language that Paul is using, is a military metaphor, as though to say, all of us are soldiers. All of us have been enlisted. That's why the advert we started with sounded the way it sounded. Soldiers know what they are getting themselves into. And they are yet, in spite of all of those things, saying yes to it. And we're going to see more and more of those kind of metaphors um, as we go on in this, <clears throat> in this letter. It's like Paul was more or less saying to Timothy, Timothy, you are not only a pastor of a church in a difficult city, you are also a Christian soldier. On that, orders from the King of Kings, not even orders from Paul, because now we know that whatever Paul is saying is not coming from Paul's authority, but from the one who made Paul an apostle by commandments, verse one. So that we must bear that in mind. When someone stands in front by the leading of the Holy Spirit, or even if it's a delegated authority that has been given to him or her to lead a session of prayer or to coordinate uh, inspirational corner or to lead us in worship, in songs of praise, whatever responsibility it might be. At that point in time, the person is, 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 is coming to us with uh, the authority that comes from a superior officer, namely God, not even just the pastors or the elders the authority ultimately is coming from God. And when we treat leadership and, I mean, worship experience like that, it changes the game. You will be less distracted if you knew that God is standing in front of you to speak to you. You will be less distracted if you knew that God is leading his people in the worship of himself. 
I always like that part in, in Exodus where Moses says, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my glory and leave, but I'll place you in the cleft of the rock. I'll go before you so that you can see my back part. And I will declare my praise before you, God praising himself. And so when we gather together to say we are praising God, you know, we could have this image of we're doing something to make God feel excited. And to some extent, in our own limited way of thinking, that's permissible. But in actual sense, God is in the midst of us, worshiping, making the praise, um, how do I put it? Making the praise a unified world, such that as much as we think we are lifting him up, we are also being lifted in that process. That's why he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. So worship is, a, is an intermingling of our spirit with his spirit. It's a very sweet experience when we see it as such and, and have that consciousness that Jesus is here. God is here in, in our midst. Even when we are seeing a brother or a sister or a man or a young person like Timothy um, standing in front of us with the mic, as the case may be. In any case, in the early church, the believers were taught the word of God and the meanings of basic Christian doctrine. And Sister Ife says she wants to know more about that, and we'll get into that. Now, Paul identified the first teaching in this part that we read in verse 1 to 11 as fables and endless genealogies. You might hear that phrase when we're reading that passage. Apparently, it seems like the first teachers were beginning to construct things. Of course, you know, by this time, there was no Bible as we have it now. I mean, Timothy was just being written, or epistle to Timothy was being written, which we eventually make it into the Bible. So all they had as scripture at this time is the Old Testament. And so all of these new instructions that are coming, apostolic instructions from the apostles, they treasure them ever so much. And so these were still coming uh, in this foundational stage of the church. And some people were coming in since there is no Colossians and Ephesians and whatever to, to back up their doctrines. They were just making all sorts of things up um, as fables and then endless genealogies. I don't know how someone can, <laughs> so, some of the most seemingly boring things you can read in the Bible are the genealogies. And you'll be surprised how many of them there are in the Bible if you actually start from Genesis to make your way down through to Revelation. you see all sorts of genealogies. And apparently some people are beginning to bring out things from those genealogies and building doctrines out of them, building all sorts of crazy things out of them. And Paul was trying to put them in their place and empower Timothy to spot those heresies and call them what they are. Um, how were they doing it? They were using the Old Testament law to manufacture all, all manner of new doctrines to lead the people astray. They were raising questions rather than answering questions. They were raising questions rather than answering questions. Please feel free to stop me at any point in time um, to make any contribution. Um, instead of producing love or purity or a good conscience and sincere faith, these are things that Paul says normal sound doctrine will produce. But rather than that, what their own kind of teachings was producing was division, was hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Um, when you, they are saying one thing with their mouth, but their lifestyle is saying something else. 
I've always found the, the Yoruba word for hypocrisy very, very instructive, agabagebe. And it brings a picture. It's, it's the picture of someone that builds, you know, when you want to plant yam in the farm, many of us have not been to the farm, those that are born in this side of, of the world, but those of us that have been in the farm, when you want to make plants yam, you make a heap. You made the heap yourself with your hoe. And then to plant the yam, you said, I've made a heap that is so big, I need a ladder to climb onto that heap to plant the yam. Everybody that hears that will know you are lying. That's what hypocrisy is. You are, you, are, you are basically putting off a false identity by virtue of what you are. You want people to believe what is not the reality. And that's, that's what these people are doing. And then all sorts of other issues were coming up, of course, in that, in that same context. Paul mentioned one of the things that Paul mentions as uh, the things that ground sound doctrine or that makes a minister to keep and abide in sound doctrine is the issue of conscience, which he mentions in verse five. And conscience simply refers to that inner judge that accuses us when we have done wrong and approves us or approves of what we have done when we have done what is right. He approves of what we have done when we have done what is right. Sorry about that. It is possible to sin against the conscience so that it becomes defiled. And we're going to see more about this if we continue on in the pastoral epistles, especially in the epistle to Titus. And that comes about by repeated sinning. When God has given everyone a conscience by his grace, even the person that is not yet saved has a conscience. But the only reason why it would seem as though someone's conscience is no longer working the same way someone else's conscience is, is because when we blatantly disregard that inner voice, that inner sense of yes and no, consistently, it gets to a point that is like the thermostat is reset. The voice is no longer as loud. And so you see some people do some things with almost no restraint things that would be unthinkable to someone else, things that you wonder, how could you in your right senses even think of doing something like this? It's because the standard of operation, the, the standard of right and wrong in both of them have become different. In verse six, it says, from which some having strayed, they have turned aside to idle talk. When they turn away from this, sense of, of right and wrong, which when you become a believer only becomes even more sharp or more, um, because now the, the truth of God's word becomes the standard that is shaping the conscience. And so you don't take your conscience for granted as a child of God. If before you were saved, the conscience was guiding you, how much more now that you are saved is no longer even the conscience as we know it. It is now the voice of the spirit of God that is finding expression through what you have always known in that sense as your conscience. But when we begin to stray from it, Paul is explaining how false doctrine starts. This is how it begins. When someone, before someone can stand before God's people and speak supposedly in the authority of God, something that is blatantly untrue. It is not because the person wanted to lie. It is not because the person intentionally wants to pass across a wrong message most times. It begins with something as simple as constantly and consistently violating 
the simple sense of conscience that the Lord has given us, which is being sanctified by the Spirit, to the point where it's, it's almost like there is no conscience anymore, and so anything can be permissible. That's when you see ministers of God excuse some behaviors that, <coughs> excuse me, that are not even supposed to be found in the midst of people that are just uh, moralists, not even Christians. That was what Paul was writing about almost with indignation in 1 Corinthians 5. That how would you say you are Christians gathering together to worship God and there is someone in your midst that is sleeping with his mother-in-law or his stepmother and there is nothing that anyone is doing about it. For, for a leader to be there and to permit that to be happening under their nose is probably because there is nothing that is revolting against that anymore as it would have been the case had they been setting their consciences by the truth of God's word. And so when they, when they dive away from that, when they gradually get drifted off that, what they are drifted towards becomes what is called I do talk here. And different versions use different other words for that. It's like vain babbling. It's like empty words. It's, it's wrong theology. And you find this in not only in sermons or clips on social media, but even in songs, songs that can conveniently have the truth and the force of God's word meddled together in the same stanza, in the same melody. One, one common one that I've heard pastors sing again and again is, I will never suffer, Jesus suffer for us. I mean, as simple as that sounded, that's coming out of a theological understanding of some people that once you become a Christian, you are not meant to suffer at all. But to say that is to blatantly disregard many scriptures, not one verse, not two verses, not three verses in the Bible that says it explicitly. Jesus said, I was hated. You will be hated as well. He said that <laughs> you will suffer with him, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. We like the that I may know in part. They like the that I may know in part. They like the power of the resurrection part. But the fellowship of his suffering, no, let's, let's leave that to one side. Let's not be made conformable unto his death. It's, it's when such selections begin and, and, and becomes a theological um, argument that they start looking for many other verses to take out of context to back up. That's how these things begin. And the only way to spot them is to ground ourselves in the truth. There are no two ways about it. The more you are rooted in the truth, the more your sensitivity for falsehood will be sharpened in that sense. Specifically in the Ephesian church, the reason for false doctrine was because of the misuse of the Old Testament law. And we saw that in the last few verses that we read in that verse 1 to 11, from around verse 6. The, the first teachers, what they were basically doing was to lead believers out of the liberty of God's grace into the bondage of legalism. And you know that for the natural man, legalism is actually appealing because legalism can make you feel righteous, make you appear righteous when in fact, there is a lot of mess going on underneath. 
Jesus used a language, uh, a phrase to describe the Pharisees like that. He called them whitewashed tomb, a grave that has rotten bones inside. People are, I mean, the person inside the grave is rotting away, but outside it is looking ever so clean and whitewashed and, and beautiful. That's what legalism does. So legalism says if you want to be a part of this church community, dress like this, wear this, don't use these words, don't eat this, and make sure you fast on this day. And anyone that is doing that ticks the box and can feel comfortable to come to the church or to the gathering of supposed professed Christians, um, in spite of very many other things that might be wrong. And so the person might just be coming from the bed that has been defiled by fornication or adultery and still come as long as he or she has dressed the way they said they should dress and done the other things that they said they should do so that when they come before God's people, they look okay. They look, they appear righteous. That's, that's what legalism basically does. So the, 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 the issue here is not that the law which these people were misusing. It's not that the law doesn't have its place. For those of us that were here when we journeyed through Romans, we spent a whole lot of time on that to show that the law does have its own place. But when it is taken out of its purpose, then it becomes an abused um, instrument in that sense. The use of the law is to expose and restrain and convict the lawless. In and of itself, he has no power to save. It can only receive or, I mean, reveal our need for a savior. So all the commandments that were given, beginning with the 10 commandments and the many other injunctions that would come in the Pentateuch and all through the Old Testament. The purpose is not necessarily about the sacrifices. And we begin to see tokens of this when, you know, think God will say things like uh, obedience is better than sacrifice. When you say things like um, in, in, in his relationship with David or David's relationship with him, he wrote many Psalms that are beginning to, to touch on the reality of grace, the reality of the fact that there is something beyond what I can do to, act, to, to, to merit God's standard because no one can actually live up to that expectation perfectly. And that's what the law is supposed to do. And so when we take the law and the gospel, the law on its own is incomplete. It leads you to your need of the savior, but then the gospel comes in to then bring in what the law cannot do. And there's actually a passage like that, I think it's in Romans 4, that what the law cannot do, that's what Christ has come to do. The law cannot save, but Christ has come to bring that salvation. So when some people begin to make all manners of, doctrines out of those things that we are not even that are meant to just show us up for our need for a savior and say we build doctrines on this there's there's a red flag there because you are asking people to come back to dwell in a reality that as far as god's scheme and agenda god's progressive revelation of his will is concerned that thing is in the past and, and there are many, many churches like that that still have things like that, things that are majorly just rooted in this old covenant that is being misused um, till date. The law is not the gospel, but the gospel is not lawless. We throw that in to make that balance very clear. 
because of course there is also the other side of those that focus on grace alone without actually understanding the reality of what the 39 books of the Old Testament has laid as a foundation for that grace to stand on. Grace doesn't just stand, it's not standing on nothing. There was a reason why Jesus did not come at the beginning of history when Adam and Eve has fallen, but waited till when God said it's time for him to come at the time that he came so that it's more or less like at the middle of history, if you will, so much so that even now we talk about time based on that reality, BC and AD, before Christ, and then AD in the year of our Lord. And so it's, it's that, that's significant. We can't just then focus on everything that happens since Jesus' arrival as though that's the beginning of history. No, that's not the beginning of history. And the reason for all of the experiences and the repeated failures of Israel, the chosen nation, the chosen people from Abraham down the history like that, is just a cycle. If you read the Old Testament, it's just a vicious cycle of repeated failures. God saying, I want to get into a covenant with you. I've chosen you to be different from other nations. I'm going to treat you specially compared to how I would treat every other nation. All I just need of you is to do X, Y, Z. And again and again, people kept falling short of that X, Y, Z. To the point where Jesus now burst on the scene to make us see that actually no one can fulfill those X, Y, Z except me. And he lived as short as his lifespan was, at least speaking, he lived perfectly, became the perfect sacrifice that would die for the sins of all of humanity. And what he did is so miraculous that even those that had lived before him and everyone that would possibly live after him gets to enjoy the richness and the perpetuity of what he has done. That's why we are here. That's what has brought us to this point. So any doctrine that would not hold on to those two sides of the equation and place it in proper balance, would lead people astray one way or the other, or would get them to not grow, will get them into a stunted growth rather than the kind of way the Lord intends for his people to grow. I'm looking at the time. Here's a question for discussion based on all these issues about legalism. You have said that Paul warned against legalistic rules and regulations of religion in the sense that they can disguise true faith. Someone can appear religious when in fact, the person doesn't have a relationship with God. Now, if we don't know people or what someone believes from the rules that he or she follows, how then are we supposed to know what the person believes? I'll take it again. If we are not supposed to know people, know ye no man after the flesh. If we are not supposed to know people in the sense of what they believe, by virtue of the rules that they follow. You know that there are some people that if you see them in town or anywhere, you just know how this person belongs to this congregation, this denomination. But that doesn't mean anything really in the sense of the heart of the person. It doesn't mean anything in terms of the quality of the work of that person with Christ. So how are we supposed to know what someone believes apart from the rules that he or she abides by. Any thoughts on that? Just to kind of um, 
give a closure to that part before we move on to the next. Is the question tricky? <laughs> Should I explain again? Yes, sir, please explain again. <laughs> okay. Um, legalism is keep this rule, keep this rule, keep this rule. Be circumcised, at least in the context of what we're reading about here. Be circumcised. Um, believe that so and so person in this genealogy is more important than so and so person. And so you should also maybe pray in the name of that person. I don't know. We don't know what they are making out of the genealogies. Um, but once you are able to do that, and once you're able to be circumcised, and once you're able to keep all the holy feasts and things like that, and mind you, these are Gentiles, these are not even Jews. Um, once you're able to do all of that, you are accepted. You are a good believer. We're saying that Paul is writing here to say that's not true because those things are not the true evidences of what a true believer is. The question basically is saying, what are then the true evidences? How do you actually know who a true believer is? I've answered it by stating it as plainly as that. That's, that's what I'm asking for. How do you know who a true believer is? If we are not supposed to hang out, um, evil communication says corrupts good manners. So how do you know the ones that their communications <laughs> is not evil in that sense? This is that missing another you are nodding. I still you understood. You'll be the one to build the cat. Praise <laughs> yes, God. Hallelujah, go on now. Um, I think it maybe through their behavior, we will be able to know. Thank you very much. Ma. We are getting to the heart of where I was going. Sister Mason wanted to state it in another way. Praise God. Hallelujah. Um, one this um um the Bible says um Okay, no, let me say the other one. Um, by the fruits of by the spirit, yeah. So that's how we know. But uh, even that, that that takes a while. Okay, you don't mean like just seeing somebody immediately, like you being in oh, sure. in the um, like close proximity with the person, yeah? yeah. Okay, but if it's like just seeing the person, like like five minutes or something. Oh, <laughs> Sometimes you're the spirit of God, and you can bear witness. That's what I mean. With another spirit, okay, okay, yes, that this person is is with us, mm. and this one, mm -mm. yeah. That's, that's where I'm going. That it's not about the physical paraphernalia of what makes you look like a Christian. At the end of the day, Jesus made it ever so simple. By their fruits, you shall know them. And if you're asking, what are the fruits? Paul goes on to write in Galatians, in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, in fact, is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love. But that love finds expression in eight other ways. And so we say the nine fruit of the Spirit, but it's still singular. It's love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you find all that in, and you don't find that in meeting someone for five minutes, like Sister Misan said, that comes in the context of relationship, especially in the church context as we are talking about here. You, we learn together and sharpen our iron sharpening others' iron, so to speak. Sister Anna? 
concern, or let us finish this discussion and I'll ask my question. It's another thing actually I'm asking. All right. Any other thoughts on this? I think we'll probably pause um, around here as well. So if there are no other thoughts on that, Sister, you can ask your question and we'll wrap up with that. Yeah, it's just going back to verse eight. Thank you. You know, you've explained um, how that the law <clears throat> how that the law is good. In my version here, it yeah. says that, we, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Mm -hmm. So from your explanation, using the law lawfully means basically recognizing its 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 purpose. Exactly. And but still working on that grace, isn't it? Absolutely. Right. Thank you. I just wanted to clarify. Thank you. That's using the law lawfully simply means you know the purpose for it. When the purpose of a thing is not known, abuse is inevitable. What's the purpose of the law? Paul called it in one of his epistles a schoolmaster. It guides us to what? It guides us to the need, to the realization of our utter depravity, to the, the, to the realization of the fact that even in my best self as a natural man, and this is where the book we are reading in G24 for this month would have been very helpful. You know what it means to be a natural man, to be a canal man, and to be a spiritual man or woman, as the case may be. But as a canal person, someone that is not yet saved, even in that, in, that, in that sense, by the time you realize that you cannot people do good things, cannot people still have the capacity to be generous, to be philanthropists, to be, there are many believers that are doing quote and unquote good, but come to a point of understanding that even in their goodness, you discover that you, we all need a savior because our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. That's what the law does. Because if you sit down with all of those requirements and then you begin to wonder, how am I supposed to keep all of these things? Human, human as we are, people were still keeping it in the days when Jesus came. At least they thought they were keeping it. And that's why Matthew 5 is a very brilliant part of the gospel for every believer to read. He puts this conversation in perspective. Jesus said in, I think, verse 20, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the common listeners that are not even Pharisees, for you to be a Pharisee, you've done many things. Some people say you must have memorized some 119, 176 verses must be in your head. You must have gotten the Torah into your heart. That's Genesis Exodus, Lepticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that must be flowing in your head. For you to be a Pharisee, there are lots of, it's a high class, it's like you become a professor of Old Testament law. Now, Jesus is saying, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of someone that knows all of that, you can't make it to heaven. And so you want to wonder, in the first instance, as a common Christian or common believer, these are not Christians, as a common follower of God. I don't even know all of the laws and perhaps I've been breaking many of them. How then can I even measure up to the righteousness of a Pharisee, let alone exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee? And what Jesus was basically saying is that the righteousness of the Pharisee, as high as it seems, still falls short of the righteousness that God expects of every one of us. And so he begins to let them see what he was saying. The Pharisees, as far as they don't sleep with someone else's wife, they believe they have obeyed the law. Jesus said, but even if you look at someone lustfully, you have committed sin in your heart. That is not part of the law in the Old Testament. 
But Jesus was making them to see that it's not just about the things that are written. It's not just about the way it was put down by Moses. It's about the heart condition. And when we get to the heart of the matter, we discover that all of us have the same sickness. We are born with the same propensity to revolt against God. Nobody in the core of their natural self wants to do things that please God the way God expects to be pleased 100% of the time. None of us have the capacity. And that's what the law is supposed to do. To bring you to the point where you feel like I've never killed anyone. So I'm obeying the commandment that says that shall not murder. Jesus said, fine, you've not killed anyone. But you look at your brother or your sister and you said an insulting word. In those days, one of their insulting statements is raka. You look at your brother and you say raka. You are already in the danger of hellfire. So people hearing that the, the walls were beginning to crumble, the veils were being taken away for them to see that, uh-uh. how then can now, can we now be saved? Basically, you are saying that all of us are done for. And that's the purpose so that they can see that we all need something more. The law has revealed the righteousness of God and it has revealed that we can never meet up to it. How can we be perfect as God, be holy as God, be loving as God? Those are the things that are specified in the law. The only way to do that is for God himself to do it. And that's what Christ came to do, to pay the price that we cannot by any means pay so that now we can enjoy the bliss and the dividends of that righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, last verse as I wrap up, says it ever so brilliantly. He that knew no sin became sin for us so that you and I can enjoy the righteousness, not of any man, but of God himself. That's the righteousness that gets you into heaven. It's the righteousness of God. That's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's the righteousness of God. And we didn't have to work for it. It's no longer about our report card being a parallel. It's now about the fact that Jesus has the a parallel and we are standing in him. And as long as you say yes to him, you are in him. And so you get to enjoy all the limitless pleasures that that brings. And that's what anyone that is not saved is missing out on. That's the message we want to take to them to bring them home where they truly belong. I pray the Lord will further expand all these words in our hearts in Jesus' name.